0: back to the Fourth Way podcast. We are now well over 50 episodes into the season on propaganda and conspiracy, and we have seen quite a lot of material. Before we move on into our next section of the season where we're going to deal more with the positive aspects of truth and discipleship, I think it's important to draw some conclusions and bring our material together from what we've learned so far. What are kind of the big takeaways that we should hang on to? The first thing I need to address uh, before kind of digging into all that, though, is I want to address my expertise or the lack thereof on this topic. You know, and as reading Elul back in the day, uh, it, it was a bit sobering to think about endeavoring on such a gargantuan task as tackling propaganda when I don't have any formal training on the topic. Now that right there could be an indicator that I'm just another mouthpiece of misinformation or propaganda, right? But I also struggle with the idea that those who come out of institutions and certain study programs don't also have their objectivity compromised in certain ways, being trained in their own echo chambers. So is expertise a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I remember that Elul said that... um, you know, it was often the most informed or the intelligent who are often the most propagandized for various reasons that we mentioned at the beginning of the season. Uh, at the same time, you can kind of see what uneducated people and people who aren't experts, how they can just spout off any anything they think. And uh, that leads to some pretty crazy places too. So is me being uh, not being an expert... Does that make this uh, better or worse in terms of uh, the informational value? Am I credible? Should you listen to me? Of course, I think so. I mean, I can vouch for myself. But it's not because I'm an objective observer. It's not because I'm smart or I'm I'm an expert. I'm trained. Uh, I'm none of those things. Rather, you should listen to me because I have used a wide variety of resources. If you go to my Goodreads list, I'm sure that you're going to find the list weighted more towards one poll than another. Um, but I also think that you'd be surprised at how broad my reading list actually is. In the last year, I've read From uh, anarchist authors, capitalist authors, nationalists, communists, democrats, republicans, Christians, and atheists. I've really tried to extend my ear to the wide diversity of people who are out there in the world. And my hope is that this not only helps to balance my views and to make them more objective, but also that the transparency of my sources helps you to extend your research and check my biases. I might not be objective, and nobody really, really is, but I try to be as transparent about the data as I can so that you can see where my objectivity might be lacking. And besides just being transparent, my philosophy of epistemology, to a certain extent, is uh, is wrapped up in this idea that broad reading and broad exposure actually helps to fill in uh, a much clearer epistemology than um you know maybe being expertly trained and really honing in on, on a very narrow field. I'm actually like 10% of the way through uh through a book that makes that argument as well. A book on epistemology called Longing to Know by Esther Meek. And it's a fantastic book. And like I said, I'm only 10% of the way in. But just the the beauty with which um Esther Meek writes and the way that she describes things and knowing and this this passion for knowing and how you come to know through covenant through relationships through uh you know interactions with the world not just um you know not just uh looking at at arguments and and all that stuff uh, it, it's fascinating in it and I'm sold on it so uh i think this diversity of of seeking knowledge is a very healthy way to go about doing things. Uh, not only because there's transparency to it, and you're able to see where objectivity might be lacking, and um, you know, you're know you not just in an echo chamber, but also because that's just kind of how knowledge is formed through coming at things from different angles. So with that sort of defense uh, out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into some of the big takeaways from this season so far. So first conclusion that I would have is power corrupts. Yes, the corrupt seek power, but power also does inevitably corrupt. Now, I don't know where the line of power is that shouldn't be crossed, but it is very clear to me that power absolutely corrupts. Now, I'm skeptical of any personality pastor, any megachurch pastor, any CEO, and definitely anyone in government office. There's so many resources you can look at to see this, but you know the one that stands out to me uh, most recently is a book called Nixonland. And you can see Richard Nixon, the son of this idealist pacifist, uh, who justifies all sorts of evils in the name of doing good for the country. And by the way, on a, on a side note, it seems like... Um, a lot of times it's these presidents who come from pacifist parents that end up being like some of the, the craziest and the worst. Um, was it Truman, I think, was another one? and Or no, no, it was Woodrow Wilson, I think, World War One. I. I think he, he was a pacifist or uh, had pacifist roots, too. But there are several others where you're just kind of shocked at their, their background. But anyway, Nixonland, great book. And you just see this immorality and this consequentialist ethic just all throughout it. Uh, You know, this ends justifying the means. It pervades so much of the corruption that you see in Nixonland. And Nixonland, I think, gives you a, a really good peek behind the political curtain. And people get power and they feel as though that they can control the future. And it's their responsibility to do so, to shape the future to their definition of good. And then they just uh, justify uh, all sorts of evils to do what they deem is good. So when we get to government, uh, of course, there are going to be thousands of true conspiracies and great evils because there's so much power there to wield. But we can track this all the way back to the small scale and the domestic abuse. Um, one, one of the books that I really enjoyed that gives you a glimpse at that is uh, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And there you can see how power corrupts in the church, Um, how just having a platform and and having a certain church model where pastors are celebrities, um, (laughs) which is another good book, Celebrities for Jesus, but you you see it everywhere, not just governments and and people who have power over armies, but in in the church, uh, in any institution, uh, even as small as the family which is where we get a lot of our, our domestic abuse and such. So power breeds of violence and injustice, and violence and injustice are covered up by conspiracies and propaganda. All of these things work together. But here, you know, the word conspiracy is often, in my opinion, such a misnomer. You know, the word itself seems to have been hijacked and has become synonymous with crazy or malicious. Now, sure, some conspiracy theorists are crazy, and sure, some conspiracists are malicious. But the second thing I've learned from doing this season is that so many conspiracies are just haphazard. Uh, And that's because a lot of times the way that we think of conspiracies is we think that there's some really intricate plan by, by some cabal or some small group of powerful people who... Uh, you know, have this master plan, this decade-long master plan that they're planning to implement. And that's just not what you find, even in a lot of the big government conspiracies. Um, you know, it it doesn't really end up being the way that, that people plan it. And it sort of snowballs into a bigger and bigger thing. And the conspiracy isn't that a, a government planned, you know, to create some Manchurian candidate 30 years down the line. It's, They had this program, and they wanted to run some tests, and they figured out a vulnerable group of people to do that on, and then they're like, oh, crap, somebody's going to find out about this, and then they try to cover their tracks, and when they do that, uh, you know, the snowball just gets bigger and bigger. Uh, The Pinochet File was was a great book that I I thought showed this well, where it's, sure, the U.S. was trying to assassinate, uh, you know, a bunch of people in Chile and uh, and trying to exert their will in the world and and do these intricate sorts of uh, initial events. But what ended up happening is is the whole system, uh, the whole event, grew into something much, much bigger. But it was through a series of just haphazard events. And I like the way George Carlin uh, talks about this. He, uh, I'll see if I can find the clip and put it in the show notes but he talks about this as convergence you know somebody kind of uh, talks to carlin and and says what are you like a conspiracy theorist you you think it's a conspiracy and he's like look it doesn't have to be a conspiracy when interests converge right uh when interests converge it's not some master conspiracy it's just human interest and human nature taking over and maybe uh, the the uh iran coup that the U.S. and Great Britain helped implement were uh, maybe that would be a good example of this. And sure you can say well a coup that's a a really intricate plan well when you look at it it's like well Iran's gonna take back their oil that they were exploited out of by imperialists Uh, Great Britain doesn't like that because it's gonna cost them a bunch of money they're gonna lose a bunch of money right? And so the U.S., uh, Great Britain, asked the U.S. for help, right? Their allies' interests converge. Um, the U.S. doesn't want Russia to come into Iran, uh, and and have influence there, and so they're like, "Sure, we'll help you." Well, what's this great grand conspiracy that the 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 U.S. implements to overthrow um, Iran? Well, sir, sure, there are some some sort of intricacies, but by and large, you just give people a bunch of money. And guns, and you say, "Hey, go, have at it and um and they just uh, are are able to uh overthrow a government relatively easily. All you generally have to do is set the stage for discord. uh You can look at uh, with Chile and some of the other countries. When the U.S. just refuses to send the aid that it had been sending for decades or when it refuses to give the loans that it has promised, uh, when it does all of these sorts of things that cause inflation in your currency, causes people to not be able to get food, uh, you you just are creating discord. You just throw a bunch of wrenches into this machine until the machine just dies. And that's not a really super intricate conspiracy it's just uh this haphazard messy sort of thing that the u.s has has done but it works in my opinion you know where the where i would say that the more true conspiracy lies isn't in the actions that the the u.s has done by and large i mean what have i talked about this season that isn't easily available common knowledge I haven't talked about anything that's hard to find. Uh, Genocide of the Philippines, uh, the Platt Amendment with Cuba, um, uh, Chile, uh, all these governments that have been overthrown by the United States uh, in in coups, assassinations. I mean, what have I said that every American citizen can't know? Um, Nothing. But hardly any American citizens do know these things, and if they do know them, there's still this uh, inclination that you know we're the land of the free, home of the brave, we fight for freedom and democracy and all that stuff like It's just ingrained into us so in my opinion, it's not these these big conspiracies um that are really conspiratorial because they're common knowledge like they're they're easy easy to know. It's why don't people know them? Why isn't this information? Uh, circulated, perpetuated. Why don't people care? That's why I think propaganda is so important because uh, there are hardly any real, true, crazy, deep conspiracies. But there is a whole lot of propaganda that has has shaped our view of history and world events. But to take this, uh, you know, this uh, haphazardness uh, down to the, the smaller level, let's again, uh, let's look at this small scale with Ravi Zacharias or, or Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein, how do you say his name? Uh, I really don't think either of those guys planned on abusing the amount of women that they did or hatching some huge elaborate plan. They weren't like, hey, you know what? My goal in life is to, uh, to molest or to abuse 50 women before I die, right? That's, they weren't planning some huge big ring. But as they realized success in, in you know, their first abuse and then their second and um, more and more and more, they figured out what tactics worked and how to avoid detection um, and until the injustice that they perpetuated was on a, a very large scale. And in that process, you have friends and family with their own interests who respond to allegations and news, and then they double down on their positions and figure out how to navigate the situation. You know, by that point, when people were kind of getting uh, whiffs of what was going on, you've got two very successful people in very different industries. And for, for all of the people who've supported them and gathered around them and love them and uh, think their work's great and are making money off of their work, it's going to be really hard for them to accept these allegations, right? Their interests converge with the abuser's interests it 's just that the abuser is you know seeking um, whatever sort of fulfillment they get out of abuse, and these other people are are seeking other things, whether that's ma- maintenance of pride. Uh, it would be embarrassing to work for for a guy that you found out was a sexual assaulter so they're they're working for pride for money, whatever it is, but their interests converge, and so even though the the people who are protecting the abusers may not want to be involved in a conspiracy. They, they might not even uh, consciously be conspiring, but they are self-deceiving and they are um, they're part of what we would deem a conspiracy, even though really what it is is interest converging in human nature and selfishness just uh, kind of doing its thing and running its course on power. And in the end, it, it might look like you have this sexual deviant criminal mastermind with a cabal of trustees and family who condone sexual assault. But what it really is, is someone who did great evil, got away with it, and it's hard for those who love him or her, those who want the work or ministry to be successful, those who don't want to lose jobs or admit the truth, it, it's hard for them to kind of cave to that. In that sense, conspiracies as we know them often aren't planned. It's more like they're, they're grown over time. It always starts with a seed of conspiracy, but conspiracy is is rarely this very intricate, masterful creation from the start, even though it ends up being that way, like a big knotted ball of yarn or something. Now that does change, uh, I think, when we get up to the governmental level. I mean, there are definitely... Some pretty big conspiracies uh, at the governmental level, even more longer term and and stuff, but it's still still very haphazard most of the time. The next major thing that I learned about propaganda and conspiracy is related to something I just heard about uh, maybe a couple months ago um, Hanlon's razor and clark's law. Hanlon's razor is similar to Occam 's razor, uh, which Occam 's razor states that. The simplest adequate explanation should be preferred. For example, you know, if you're you're talking about theism, right? If you're saying, well, you know what? Uh, because of complexity, apparent design, uh, the causality, you know, there the, there was a beginning, um, and things don't come into being out of nothing. There must be a God that exists, right? A supernatural being outside of space and time who started it all. Okay, well, you could say, well, no, I think that there are gods. There are many gods who started it all. And Occam's razor would just say, well, if one god can do it, why would we posit more, right? Um, and that's just an example of Occam's razor. Uh, the simplest adequate explanation should be preferred. And that's where adequate comes in, because uh, somebody might say, well, God is not the simplest answer, Right. Uh, just matter always existing is the simplest answer, uh, because you don't have to posit anything outside of nature, anything supernatural that just complicates things. You say, okay, but I'm arguing that it has to be an adequate explanation. If there was a beginning of the universe, and uh, that means that there had to be something outside of it to start it, right? and, and we could get into all of that argument. The point isn't whether or not God exists. The point is uh we need a simple, adequate solution, uh a solution that fits all of the the um evidence. Now Hanlon's razor is going to say something somewhat similar and says that we should never attribute malice to that which is adequately explained by stupidity. I'll repeat that, because uh it was new for me and I had to think about it. Uh we should never Attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. So, for example, when someone cuts me off in traffic, they're probably just an idiot, right? Stupidity. They're not a CIA agent out to get me or an enemy seeking to make my life miserable, right? So to attribute malice to something that I can adequately explain by stupidity, would be to complicate my, uh, my hypothesis or my idea, right? Um, so you can see how it's kind of similar to Occam's razor there then, the simplest adequate explanation. Um, and of course, in, in driving, people have this problem all the time, right? We attribute malice to people who pull out in front of us or do whatever, and most of the time, people are just being dumb. Just like when we pull out in front of somebody, we're just being dumb. We're not being malicious, usually. So that makes a whole lot of sense, right? Yet, when you look at history, when you see the terrible injustices and the conspiracies that have transpired, and you see how much mythology we embrace, and how little of history we know or care about, you have to wonder, are we really ignorant people? Are we really just that stupid? Or is there something else going on? My wife and I had this conversation uh, before I knew about Hanlon's Razor, because that would have helped. But when she was listening through and critiquing uh, one of my episodes on propaganda and racism, at the part where I talk about how voting against MARTA was a form of racism, she paused it and she she said that she thought that this hardline stance calling something like voting against MARTA uh, racism. She thought that uh, people wouldn't be able to to hear that. Um, she said, "Think about this this guy that we know, John Smith. Uh, it, I'm not going to name him here, of course, but um, you know the, this guy, John Smith, that I really, really like, and I think he's got a great heart and he does so much good." She said, "Think about him. Do you really think that he dislikes black people, or that when he votes?" He's voting with the intention of of keeping black people out of his neighborhood. Do you really think he's a racist? And on the one hand, I I really get the argument, and I think Hanlon's razor applies, right? Uh, he's just being stupid. He's not being malicious. Like he doesn't want to hurt black people, or or minorities, or or anybody else. I really, really don't think that John sees the racism present in things like voting down Marta. But then there is uh, something that I think you need to balance out Hanlon's razor here, and that is Clark's Law, which which pushes back a little bit, because Clark's Law says that any sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malice. I'll repeat that one more time. (laughs) Any sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malice so in the end it, it doesn't really matter if john smith fails to see the racist implications of his actions his ignorance or incompetence is indistinguishable from malice now this still doesn't mean that he is malicious he's trying to hurt people but it's his actions are indistinguishable from malice like i can't tell the difference and this is where, if we go back to our, our uh, getting cut off in traffic example, I think you can, see, uh, you can see how this would work out. Me getting cut off in traffic by, you know, this guy in a red car, okay, he's just being stupid, right? He cut me off once. Um, it's not malicious. But then we, we keep drive, driving down the highway, and he swerves and cuts in front of me again. And then he swerves and cuts in front of me again. And he does this for like 10 miles straight. Am I still supposed to think that this is uh, stupidity, right, and not malice? Like at some point, stupidity turns into malice. It's indistinguishable because I'm essentially being targeted, Uh, you know, whether the driver in that car is intending to or not. He passed a threshold for which I, I can reasonably believe that he's just being stupid at best, he's being really negligent and just coincidentally hurting me uh, or, or, uh, you know, coming close to hurting me every time. And that's, you know, I think that's really where we're at in this season. And I'm thinking especially of our episode on Haiti. You know, the information about the U.S. empire is out there for anyone who wants to see uh, all that information. Easy. It's accessible. The truth of the subjugation and oppression of others, all the land and money we've stolen, the people we've massacred, all that is right out there in the open. And the ramifications of those actions aren't too difficult to piece together either. So this ignorance or incompetence that we supposedly have, keep having over and over and over again, we keep swerving in front of various groups of people, You know, this inability to see the truth of history and its impact on the present, it's really not an excuse for the malice that is our maintaining of our convenient ignorance. Does that mean that John Smith is a racist? Yeah, I think it does. But, I mean, I would say that all of us are probably racists or imperialists or some other sort of ist in in some sort of way. We are willfully ignorant, and we want to maintain that ignorance, and propaganda really helps us to do that. And then when somebody calls us whatever kind of ist it is that we are, we throw our hands up in the air and say, well, how, no, I'm not, right? I just swerved in front of you, right? Uh, No malice here, but really, it's the 10th time you've swerved in front of that group, whatever your ist is against. And you just can't use stupidity as an excuse anymore. So saying a word like racist today, it sounds really harsh. And in some ways, I think that's good because we need to stop harboring abuse in any form. And if it takes a slap in the face to cause us to to recognize this supposed stupidity that we have that keeps hurting people, then yeah, let's, let's recognize that. But on the other hand, the harshness of the word and society's unwillingness to allow for change, uh, to allow for repentance, means that it's impossible now to call a spade a spade and make any progress, right? I should be able to call racism racism without it being viewed as a damning judgment, but rather a call to change and move away from the untruth of racism. I want John Smith to be able to see what he's doing, um, not because I'm pointing my finger at him and saying you're a racist, but saying, "Hey, I know you don't want to be a racist. Like, let's let's move away from this. Here's the truth about what you're doing. Let's move together." Unfortunately, that's not how our culture tends to do things, and quite understandably so. I mean, how long can uh, can a certain community uh, an oppressed community? Um, be patient and coddling to people who are actively harming them over and over again, actively swerving in front of them. Like I, I get why that's, it's not that way. But as a Christian, I I hope that, uh, you know, we can move more towards reconciliation rather than, uh, you know, oh, gotcha, you're a racist. So I think the, the final thing that I would want to pull out here, and uh, it's something that I've talked about since uh, probably the the first main episode where we discussed propaganda, is uh, in regard to these propaganda and, and conspiracies is the idea of isolation and polarization. And really the two go hand in hand because to polarize something is to isolate into two groups, right? Uh, if you've got a right and a left pole or a North and a south, or a positive and a negative, uh, you're you're really creating two groups and you're distancing them from each other, and that's that's what propaganda and uh, and conspiracies tend to do with people. Uh, it's going to isolate and polarize, and that's one of the reasons that I, uh, another one of the reasons that I think reading very broadly is extremely helpful and extremely important. Listening to a variety of sources, um, I yeah I can't tell you how many times my my views have been tempered and uh, you know balanced out by by doing this. In fact, this is something that I've without knowing that it was a healthy thing to do. Maybe it's not healthy. It's not healthy for other people, but playing devil's advocate was healthy for me. Uh, I, I was always able to understand where other groups were coming from, even if I didn't believe what they believed, because uh, a lot of the times I would argue from the opposing position in order to help me solidify my views and to learn about the other views. And I think that's extremely healthy, because even if you can't, even if you don't change your views, you'll find that you move more towards the middle and, and at least have Uh, Empathy and understanding, and you can listen to people at the other pole. Uh, And in fact, I changed my mind on quite a number of issues by playing devil's advocate and ending up coming to the, the other view. But that's really scary too. I don't think people want to do that. I think there's probably a fear that people have that if they would give ear to the other side, their minds might actually be changed. And this is something uh, I've talked about elsewhere before about Thomas Kuhn's uh, on the structure of scientific revolutions and his idea of uh, paradigm shifts and essentially saying that, look, you don't change your mind when you get 50.01% certainty that uh, the view uh, that was opposite to you is now right, right? You don't just tip the scales and, oh, well, now I've changed my mind. I'm on the other side because there are a lot of forces that hold us to a view. Um it there's there's a heavy cost to change what it is that you're doing most of the time. I mean it's just a one small example. Um my wife when we found out that uh she needed to eat gluten-free because of all of the eczema that she got and figuring that out through, you know, when she stopped eating gluten. Uh, Our son stopped getting eczema when she was breastfeeding him. Um, She's like, well, I guess, uh, you know, I guess I need to eat gluten-free too. And her eczema cleared up completely. It's kind of like it took her many, many years to come to that conclusion. You just didn't want to face it because that meant a change in her lifestyles. It meant that she wasn't going to be able to eat pizza like, uh, you know, we had eaten. Uh, loved eating all the time or the the various uh, things that just gluten is in, which is like everything. And so our life's, lifestyles were going to have to change and it, we'd also incur more cost uh, monetarily. And sure, her health would be better um, and her comfort would be better, but there's a big cost to changing those things. And then also you're going to have some people think that you're one of those weirdos, like, oh, yeah, right, you have to go gluten-free. So there's there's some level of social cost to that too, being a crunchy weirdo, and it took a while. Like it wasn't it wasn't something that she just decided to do, um, because there was there's a cost to it. You could look at other things. You know, to do. well, is a car company going to want to admit when it has a, a faulty part? It's going to cost it a lot of money. Uh, maybe a great example of this, I forget what the what the uh, the play is called. All my sons, maybe, uh, but it it's the uh, the play that Twenty One Pilots is named after. But you've, there was this uh, airplane company in World War II, and they they made faulty parts or something. They cut corners. I don't remember exactly what, but their their machines ended up uh, crashing. Their airplanes ended up crashing and i think killing 21 pilots and <clears throat> when it you know when they did there were there were a whole lot of ramifications for that but it's like man if we recognize that this this part is faulty uh it's going to cost us like we want to be really sure before we overhaul everything and basically go bankrupt from from this and so they risked people's lives in order to you know come to certainty more certainty but by the time they came to enough certainty that made them want to pull the trigger on uh, fixing the problem, right? And it ended up being a greater cost. So the point is, people don't want to change their minds. There's a whole lot of inertia keeping people going in the direction that they're already going and they don't want to change uh, from whatever pole they're moving towards. and it, And it's hard. And this is what propaganda and conspiracies do so, so well. There, there's a whole lot of framing of issues, um, and um, there's a lot that's done to keep one's momentum going in a particular direction and to keep one from changing course. Well, I think that uh, about sums up my thoughts at this point. There's so much... Absolutely so much that um you know I could pull out from this season, but those are I think the big takeaways that um that I would want to walk away with uh because that that really just summarizes so much of of what's happened this season and um and why these things are important so hopefully, as we move into the uh, the next part of the season, it's a overall shorter parts um you know less episodes and less time for sure but it's it's a really important part because we see what propaganda what conspiracies are like and what they do and uh, the power trips that people are on and and how it just it messes with people and it shapes people and it um it's just evil and so we want to look at truth and discipleship and we want to see what is what is the positive iteration of this okay if we don't want a, a world run on propaganda if we want to seek truth how do we do that and is truth even important like well, maybe i should play the propaganda game if i can do it better than the other person and if i can wield it for good however i define that then maybe i should play the game too so we'll we'll get into uh, morality and other sorts of things as well so hopefully you you stay tuned for the most important part because this next part's the part that's going to help you build your life up. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.